1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about, On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Alain Duboton about love and sex.
2: My view of human nature is that all of us are only just holding it together in various (laughs) ways, and that's okay. And we just need to go easy with one another, knowing that we're all these incredibly fragile beings.
0: Here's Debbie Millman. The art of travel. The pleasures and sorrows of work. How to think more about sex. How Proust can change your life. These are just some of the titles of books by the prolific Alain de Botton. He's not yet 50, but he's already written a shelf of books. They're about our lives and how to live them, and they are graceful, witty, and wise. Alain de Botton is also a novelist. His latest is titled The Course of Love. He joins me now to talk about his career, his always surprising take on the world, and about his new book. Alan de Botton, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. Alan, I read an interview with you in the New York Times wherein you confessed that you are always close to tears reading Judith Kerr's children's story, The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Why?
2: I think there's something about beautiful things, tender things, books where the characters rediscover hope And because these qualities are quite under threat in the ordinary world, when you come across them in a book, it sometimes brings tears to the eyes. And those tears are really tears of recognition of how hard Mm. ordinary life, your life, has become, perhaps compared to what it was like in childhood. So I think it's an interesting thing. When do people cry in art? It's not necessarily when things are sad. Sometimes it's when things are more beautiful than people expected. And you're reminded of a kind of lost Eden. And you might situate that in childhood or in into some, some other realm to the one that you're able to inhabit day to day. It's a reminder of a better self, which seems painfully out of reach. And that's in a way what you're crying about.
0: I feel the same way about the velveteen rabbit. It destroys me. I can't even read a page of it without just weeping uncontrollably. Uh, You were born in Zurich after your father was expelled from Alexandria, Egypt, along with the rest of the Jewish community. And you've described your childhood as one of financial ease and emotional deprivation. In what way were you emotionally deprived?
2: I made a vow that after 40, I would never complain about my parents again. So I don't really want to complain about them. But look, they were brilliant people who had real trouble with their emotional life. And I think that many people's careers are attempts to fix their parents. And in some ways, my career is an attempt to fix my parents, even though one of them is dead and the other's not really interested. But that's not the point. Mm, I it's, <laughs> it's a symbolic kind of attempt to fix. And what I wanted to fix was how intelligent people can be lacking emotional wisdom. And all of my work, to some extent, is trying to point towards a wiser way of living simply because I observed from very up close what happens when you know, driven, energetic, otherwise intelligent people, um, their lives start spiraling out of control.
0: You've stated that your father was a cruel tyrant, and we won't go into that since you're over 40 now, um, and he was mostly ignoring of your existence and that the energy involved in your writing ultimately comes from a desire to make sense of the people that you saw as a child. Have you been able to do that? Have you been able to make sense of it? Or is it still an ongoing exercise?
2: I have been able to make sense of it and to put it in context. I think that all of us experience some form of early trauma or another. And, you know, lives get defined by what you do with that trauma. What are you going to do with it? Um, Can you put it to use? Can you recognize it? Can you integrate it into your life um, fruitfully? And looking back, I think given the cards I was dealt, you know, I've done that more or less on a good day. And that's a source of satisfaction to me.
0: Interesting that you say on a good day. I understand that feeling where you're always sort of aware of the trauma and some days it just seeps through, bubbles back up and destroys everything. (laughs) My my, my
2: view of human nature is that all of us are only just holding it together in various (laughs) ways and that's okay. And we just need to go easy with one another, knowing that we're all these incredibly fragile beings. And um, human nature is is perverse, bizarre, um, always perplexing.
0: Before you became a writer, I understand you had an interest in making film documentaries, but you found it to be incredibly hard, very expensive, and you realized that you didn't have the courage to keep battling away at it. Why?
2: I'm a people pleaser. I'm not very good at sort of upsetting people. And filmmaking often requires you to have an incredibly powerful vision and a way of upsetting and manipulating a lot of people around you to accept that vision and I just couldn't do the two because I have a very strong vision and yet I want to sort of keep other people happy and so writing seemed a much better way because you can do it on your own you don't need to persuade large numbers of people weirdly I've now much later started up a YouTube channel where I make uh, lots of little films every week the great thing about it is I hardly need to ask anyone so it's a very pure form of what I was looking for when I was maybe 18 and try to make some short movies, but just could never manage to persuade the cameraman not to do that thing that he wanted to do and, you know, all the rest of
0: it. You studied history at Cambridge University and went on to get a master's degree in philosophy at King's College in London, and then began a PhD program in philosophy at Harvard, which you eventually discontinued. What were you imagining at that time you wanted to be?
2: Look, like many young people with a kind of cultural and aesthetic interest, I imagined that academia was going to be nirvana because, you know, these guys were going to pay you to do the stuff that, you know, it was lovely to do anyway, reading books, writing, etc. And then I quickly realized that really there was a mass deception going on and that academia had collectively got together to try and make this supposedly lovely thing as unpleasant as possible, simply because they had a massive problem of oversubscription. So the only way to deal with oversubscription is to make you jump through so many hoops and make those hoops so unpleasant that only the most determined survive. Look, ultimately, I felt that the sort of things I was interested in, though they made use of the humanities, weren't actually things that needed to be interpreted in an academic way, that the academic strictures, the footnoting, etc took away from the force of what I was trying to say. They didn't help it.
0: And so was there an intention, a very specific intention to become a writer?
2: I was really confused because, of course, when you say you want to be a writer, people automatically go, well, that means you're a novelist. And then there are these few... Uh, you know subgenres of non-fiction but they have a much lesser status and the field is often occupied by so-called professionals so i didn't really know how i would fit in and i tell you the career of one person in particular was absolutely decisive to me and that's the french theorist essayist and writer roland Barthes, who liberated me and i remember that as a, a young man i would have all his books on my shelf And I would sometimes look at them just to gain inspiration, just like a religious person might look at an icon to fill themselves up. And so he he really gave me courage, not so much for what he wrote, but the forms, the inventiveness. He was a man who might write a beautiful essay on photography, and then he might move to an essay about Japan, and then a book about Balzac, etc. And I thought, this is the sort of life that I would like to lead. And so, as I say, I can't underestimate the role that Holland Bart had at a certain point in my career in giving me courage.
0: It's impossible to talk about your new book, The Course of Love, without talking about your first novel on love, written over 20 years ago, uh, published in 1993. And in that book, you describe the arc of a relationship from the moment two people see each other to the moments when their love ends. So I'd like to talk about that book first, if you don't mind. The book is written almost as a philosophical analysis of a relationship. Was that your intention to craft it in that manner?
2: I think I wanted to play with an opposition or tension which was alive in my own life and that I wanted to bring out on the page. And that is the opposition between rational thought, experience, cultural knowledge on the one hand and on the other, feeling emotion, the dramas of the heart, and also the everyday, the everydayness of our feelings. And I wanted to collide these two opposed elements. I wanted to put Plato in the kitchen. Mm. I wanted to have a minute analysis of small moments of relationships. I wanted to bring an academic's forensic eye to the minutiae of love.
0: There are so many lines in both on love and the course of love that I'm going to read back to you to ask for elaboration, maybe to challenge you a little bit. You say we fall in love because we long to escape from ourselves with someone as ideal as we are corrupt.
2: I think that there is often a desire to escape oneself in love. It's not so much that one wants to be welcomed by another person. It's the one who wants to kind of forget oneself and immerse oneself in the sort of perfection of another. It's not necessarily always healthy. (laughs) Is it ever? (laughs) But we have this enormous capacity to locate um, perfection elsewhere. And this is what the crush is all about. You know, the the crush, it sounds such a silly thing, but it goes right to the heart of how romantic love is, is perceived. You're walking down the street, you see an attractive stranger, and instantly you're overwhelmed by a sense that this person would be perfect. And you know that it's a crazy feeling, but you detect something in the corner of their mouth, something about their eyes, something about the way they're holding their clothes, something just gives you that certainty. And... It's absurd and yet it's in a way the central sun around which the kind of planets of love, as we understand them today, revolve. The crush is the instantaneous certainty of the location of the ideal. And there's an awful lot of projection and deception, self-deception in it. And it can take us years to unpick that. But, you know, when you're 22, boy, is it powerful.
0: I think Freud talked about that initial crush as a psychosis. And the very beginning of the crush, you say, perhaps the easiest people to fall in love with are those about whom we know nothing. That's right.
2: The more information you know, um, (laughs) the more you're forced to realize that actually they are an independent person outside of your fantasy. And I think what Freud was alluding to is the way that when we decide that someone is perfect, often what we're doing is transferring feelings that arose normally from early childhood around perfection and satisfaction around the mother. That was his line. And so we relocate those feelings in another person who is not in fact the mother and we are not in fact the child. But that's why the less information there is, the more our unconscious can kind of hold on to this rather peculiar piece of emotional trapeze work.
0: In your book, How Proust Can Change Your Life, you ask this question in the chapter, How to Be Happy in Love. How long can the average human expect to be fully appreciated? And the answer, often as little as one quarter of an hour. So we metabolize love. We metabolize everything.
2: That's right. I mean, one of Proust's concerns, and this is what makes him such a fascinating artist and quintessential artist, is that he's aware of how much we fail to appreciate the beauty and interest of things that are too often around us. And he understands art as a mechanism that can restore beauty and interest to things that have been unfairly neglected. And, and that's how he reads the history of art. So when he reads the Impressionists, for example, he understands that these are people who looked at ordinary scenes, wind blowing through a tree or a bunch of asparagus on a sideboard, and they were able to reawaken us. And he, very in a very humane and fascinating way, his argument is we shouldn't go and appreciate simply the works of art at the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay, what we should do is learn art's general lesson, which is its power to reanimate our relationship with the world.
0: You often speak of the importance of understanding one's own psychology. Are there questions that you ask yourself that help guide you to better understand your own psychology with regards to love and work? Do you go to analysis? Do you examine that for yourself?
2: I've been to analysis for many years. Um, and think it's a tremendous discipline because what it does is to give you a tool um, with which to understand yourself because another person's interest and curiosity makes you more interesting to yourself. I mean, the very fact that you're asking me these questions, for example, now is forcing me, leading me to go into my own mind. Normally, one hovers on the outside of consciousness. When there's a somebody asking questions and listening carefully, you travel inside. And that is what therapy can help you to do. But it's not the only thing. I mean, there are versions of therapy that one does on one's own, including having a hot bath or going on a country walk or simply lying in bed with a pen and paper and downloading the contents of one's mind. Um, all these are forms of mental
0: self-investigation. Ella, you pose a question, why do we kiss people? Why do we kiss people? My question to you, why do we kiss people?
2: There's a question that really goes to the heart of what is sex about? And at one level, sex is, you know, looked at from 30,000 feet, a highly peculiar thing. There's so much interest in touching bits of somebody else's body. And, and why? Why You know, let alone rub lips and hold hands and what, what's going on here? And the way I read it is I think that what makes sex exciting is really the sense of someone allowing you into their life. And the backdrop to sex is loneliness, a feeling of our unacceptability and our sort of alienation from others. You can analyze almost any so-called sexy situation through that lens. You know, why is it interesting to be kissed or to kiss? It's because normally people's mouths are such an area of taboo. They're so central, through space through which we speak and eat and breathe. And yet to be inside somebody else's mouth is just, well, it sounds revolting. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, we don't really like dentists very much, do we? we don't like dentists. It's, It's intensely private. And to give somebody permission to be there, it's a way of saying, I accept you in my life. And that isn't just psychologically interesting. That then becomes erotic, but I think the psychological excitement is what comes first. Eroticism is really the physical manifestation of psychological excitement. You know, oral sex, for example, again, what's going on there? Why would that be particularly exciting? It's exciting because it's permission. It's like the so-called dirty, shameful, private side is being accepted and witnessed by another person. And this is a vital corrective, a haunting feeling of loneliness, which pursues all of us all the time.
0: But it's interesting that the behavior or the act of sex, in, in many cases in relationships, helps cement that relationship and create an intimacy and a exclusivity. And that has very little to do with procreation, especially if you're not in a heteronormative relationship.
2: That's right. And, and, of course, sometimes it leads people to impatience and to a feeling of, why does this act need to be so sacred? Why can't we just share it with lots of people? And well,
0: that's the center of polyamory now exactly. as well.
2: And our age is impatient and is looking for answers. And before there was polyamory, there was free love. And, you know, th- there's always been a wing, a side of human nature that goes, well, essentially it's in rebellion against possessiveness and jealousy. I almost think that it's like trying to argue with the waves. I mean, they will be stronger than you. And, you know, you go out there and try. But I think we have to accept jealousy as a demented force that is within us. And we can't reason with it. But, you know, there is a real difference between playing tennis with someone and having oral sex with someone. It may not look it and it's it's in a way it seems a bit arbitrary. But um, let's not get too reasonable about it. There is a difference.
0: There's also a big difference with who we bring to that room where we are having our oral sex because it seems in both on love and the course of love and certainly my own experiences of love the person you bring to that early relationship is not the person that you are and you write every fall into love involves the triumph of hope over self-knowledge we fall in love hoping we won't find in another what we know is in ourselves all the cowardice weakness laziness dishonesty compromise and stupidity we throw a cordon of love around the chosen one and decide that every Everything within it will somehow be free of our faults. And then you go on to say, what is so frightening is the extent to which we may idealize others when we have such trouble tolerating ourselves.
2: That was me at 22. Where do we go from there? (laughs) And I think, this is my, my latest thought on this, is that I think that there are relationships which force you to be fully acquainted with the most damaged and difficult sides of another person. And those are what one would call a marriage or a long-term relationship or a real commitment, especially when there are children. You then cannot escape it. You can't edit yourself in front of another person. The constraints of it, you're sharing the bathroom, you're sharing the bedroom, you're with each other all the time. There is nowhere to go. And one way to interpret that is to say, well, uh, then you're seeing the real person. And so in a way, that's great. But I also want to hold on to the idea that sometimes we should be allowed to edit ourselves and that there could be relationships where two people decide that they don't necessarily want to expose one another to the full extent of their disturbances, that they may want to say, let's call it a day. You know, we've, we've, uh, we've spent three days together. Let's see. I'll next see you in five days. I just need a little time. And rather than this being an abandonment of love or an abandonment of intimacy, it could be seen as a desire to protect your partner from your more damaged and damaging sides.
0: It seems at the beginning of many relationships, and certainly in both of your novels, the characters not only want to edit, but also create a persona that will best excite and entice the other person and you state that as they are falling in love and attempting to make the best possible impression on each other, this question is posed. How can I abandon my true self unless I know what false self to adopt?
2: I think there's a real tension in love, at the beginning of love particularly, between the desire to be honest about who one is and the desire to win the affection of another person. And of course, ideally, we can both be honest and loved for being honest, that's the dream. But for many of us, perhaps most of us, there can be moments of conflict where we think, well, if I am totally honest, I will sacrifice the affections of another. And, you know, we're all quite skilled, I think, at swerving away from the challenges of honesty, maybe for good reasons. Um, This happens particularly around sex, where, you know, many of us just in the early days don't want to frighten our partners. We (laughs) We don't want to ignite their jealous sides. So we edit ourselves and it happens around lots of things. We may not want to reveal how much time we want to spend away from them or indeed how much time we want to spend with them. And it's touching. It's also very dangerous. I think that to some extent maturity is about an ability to talk in an unfrightened way and a reassuring way about some of one's more troubling desires. And I think as people get older, they get better at this. And When I watch older people getting into relationships now, I think one of the good sides is they'll say things like, there's just some things I've got to tell you about myself. You know, I've learned this over long years. You know, on Sunday evenings, please don't say anything. I'm just going to be in a strange mood, uh, but, you know, I'll I'll be okay on Monday morning. And it's maybe best to leave me alone. That may be the hard-won fruit of years of arguments with another person who has been the educator in this field. But, you know, young people in their desire to please and in their fear of their own peculiarities will not be able to calmly lay out their oddities in a way that the other person has a chance of understanding.
0: So you talk about oddities and oddness in How to Think More About Sex, and you actually start off the book by stating it's rare to get through this life without feeling generally with a degree of secret agony, perhaps at the end of a relationship or as we lie in bed frustrated next to our partner, unable to get to sleep, that we are somehow a bit odd about sex. How so? How are we a bit odd? What is considered odd now?
2: The challenging thing is that we tend to feel that we live in a liberated age and that therefore it's especially odd to feel that sex is a bit odd. And that's a very unhelpful (laughs) backdrop. You know, at least the Victorians knew that they were a bit messed up um, about sex and sex (laughs) was kind of weird and undiscussable. But we think it should all be easy. I think human sexuality remains really very challenging in some of the things that it drives us towards. Many of our sexualities are at odds with who we are in the rest of our lives.
0: In what way? How so?
2: So somebody who is maybe very democratic, committed to egalitarianism, to the respect and dignity of all humans, may want to enslave someone and treat them extremely badly in a sexual scenario. And this could sit so oddly with the rest of their commitments that they literally think that they've been visited by a kind of madness. Or someone who's extremely committed to being able, self-possessed, self-directed, may find that in a sexual scenario, they want to be someone's slave. They want to surrender entirely. Um, and again, this can be extremely frightening, particularly if you're quite young and you just you recognize this in yourself, that this is what excites you. Our societies have done amazing things about recognizing lesbian and gay desires and legitimating them and describing them and describing them to ourselves and to others. But in a way, this is only one part of an enormous spectrum of human sexuality that still lies outside that very punishing normative sense of, you know what is usual and what is normal.
0: Why do you think that the politics of BDSM is so prevalent now, more than ever before. People are talking about it. I don't think it has anything to do with Fifty Shades of Grey. I think that was just an interesting timing tipping point. But it seems to me that the politics of polyamory, the politics of surrendering or dominating, all of these things now have a strong resonance in culture. Do you, do you see a, a reason why that's happened. Well,
2: I think it's it's the ongoing kind of liberation of the human spirit as we tackle ever more subjects which had previously lain in the darkness and try and find a public conversation to have around them, an unshamed account of what it is that people may want. I think people are also, you know, there's a general realization that things that were seen as very much on the margins of human desire Actually may lie quite close to almost a kind of a norm um, and one has to go of course very carefully because issues of power are so troubling in the outside world in the world outside the bedroom and so I think there's been an attempt just to sort of say well where do we go from here how do we how do we stop this just simply being abuse um, and I think that's the search for it a kind of an evolved way of talking about some pretty nuanced desires that are on the edge of things that can seem pretty frightening.
0: You say that few of us are remotely normal sexually, and I'm not even sure what normal means anymore.
2: That's right. Our desires, and we can thank Freud for this, of course emerge from childhood and are reflections of all sorts of uh, commitments and ideas. Um, I, I think to some extent Freud was guilty of making sexuality seem too weird. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who's very interested in in men who wear unshowy but elegant old timepieces on their wrists, and she finds this sexually exciting. Now, one could go, well, you know, where do we go with that thought? Like many fetishes, it's often linked to a desire for something quite logical really in that person's Life. What that person wants is a certain sort of manliness that she associated with her father, and a sort of watch that he used to wear. It's not the father she wants; it's the qualities she associates with her father that are embodied in that watch. And the watch becomes a sexual object, and she wants to integrate the watch into a sexual game. And it's could seem very perverse. It's not at all. It's what we try and do often in sexual games, is. Um, articulate bits of our own utopia, bits of our own utopic desires, how we want the world to be. We want the world to be a place where there are more gentle older men who have a thoughtful uh, conversational relationship with women. You know, and that's going to latch onto the watch. So that becomes the symbol. And then you want to have sex with someone wearing the watch or even with the watch itself. It sounds a little odd, but it's in fact quite logical. And you you can analyze so many so-called fetishisms like this. I mean, take the phenomenon of spitting, the desire that some people have to spit on a partner. You go, well, what on earth is that? Now, think about how little children are taught from a very young age that spitting is the worst thing to do, um, that that's really a horrible thing to do. Imagine being in a safe zone with a partner and that you are able to show your contempt For your contemptuous sides, and nevertheless not censored for them. You know, we we grow up having to be good boys and girls, and that's quite punishing. And one of the things I think we want from sex is a release from that pressure to be a good boy or girl. We want to be seen as good, but not having to be good in any kind of overly punitive way. So being bad, yet accepted is a really strong sexual fantasy. But again, it's not just a sexual fantasy. It's a human fantasy. It's how we want someone else to treat us.
0: Do you feel that every relationship or most relationships have an aspect of trying to repair a previous childhood trauma embedded in them?
2: Yes, definitely. And this is why many relationships are incredibly conflictual. They have a lot of conflict in them because... You know, somebody who's got trouble reconciling the physical and the mental or, you know, affection and work or whatever it may be, may, may choose a partner who represents some of these, who's interestingly situated around some of these tensions. And then the challenge is, can they together heal that area? Can, can they use their partner, the partner, as a tool with which to go and fix something? And unfortunately, most of the time what happens is people just blame the other for a dynamic that's in them and that's in their past and they punish them and two people don't grow and you know mostly that happens.
0: Speaking of normal and speaking of things that mostly happen um, I never felt so understood in a book that I've ever read and hence more normal um, when reading The Course of Love. I originally read your first novel, On Love, because I read that it was a prequel of sorts to The Course of Love. So I started to read The Course of Love wondering where the characters in On Love were, Chloe and her narrator boyfriend. And I was confused when they weren't readily apparent on page one. On page six, I realized that Chloe was a fly-by mention as one of the main character's past girlfriends. And suddenly I realized that Rabi Khan, the protagonist of The Course of Love, was the narrator of On Love all along. So well done, that was really clever. (laughs) There are some similarities to Chloe and Kirsten, Rabi's wife in The Course of Love. They both bite their nails. They both have imperfect teeth. So why is that a little bit of a fetish of yours, Mr. de Botton?
2: Um Well, it's a fetish of my character. And I think also <laughs> it reflects the fact that um, we do tend to fall for people who are remarkably similar in lots of ways. So it seemed important that he wasn't suddenly with a confident bosomy blonde, but, you know, with someone who had some of the same kind of traits. And further than that, that's a matter for me and my therapist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Unlove is very much a love story while The Course of Love is the story of the life of a marriage. And you describe marriage in the following way. A hopeful, generous, infinitely kind gamble taken by two people who don't know yet who they are or who the other might be, binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of and have carefully omitted to investigate. Ella, why do we do so little of what you term investigation up front? Are we just oblivious or are we delusional? I think
2: we really, really want it to work. And we want it to work so much that the thought of pausing and asking ourselves whether it really can work is too difficult. Because let's not forget that to get to a stage where you feel like marrying somebody, where you've you found someone who you're attracted to, they're attracted, you know, you've both got time, you've both, you know, some basic things are right. That already is an enormous achievement. And so we don't have the, often many of us, the mental space to go, you know what, I'm really going to open the lid on this and take a thorough investigation. And if it's not (laughs) good, I'll just throw it away and I'll start again.
0: Yeah, we'll never marry anybody that way.
2: The thought is just hideous. And partly that's just to do with You know, the organization of our societies, which places great emphasis on us pairing up, doesn't necessarily provide much guidance on how to do it or where to find uh, people despite Tinder, (laughs) etc. And, you know, it's still very rare to be in a position to find someone who even vaguely you could end up marrying. And so we don't have the luxury of choice and we we rush in afraid of what we might find. Um, And also, you know, we want it to be Right we um, we couldn't bear disappointment.
0: Rabi, the protagonist of The Course of Love, loves from a feeling of incompleteness and from a desire to be made whole. That's not really love, is it?
2: No. he He's looking... He's a romantic, and I think in many ways the novel is a journey from romanticism towards a more psychological form of love. And it's looking deliberately at this thing called romantic love, which is... You know, at best 200 years old and is a troublesome ideology that tells us things like a lover will make you complete, a lover will solve loneliness, a lover will be your best friend and everything to you, a lover will complete your life. These are are the ideas that we think of as romantic and they're beautiful but they're trouble as well. And in many ways the novel is the story of how two people who've bought, like most of us, into the romantic idea learn that actually love might be a little bit different. And so I say at one point that they learn that love is not just a feeling, an enthusiasm, but a skill. And the novel is the story of how they very painfully learn that love might need to be a skill. And what is that skill? It's really about understanding oneself, understanding the other person, and learning to communicate between the gulf that separates a couple. I'm summarizing it brutally. It's much more complicated than that. But that, that those are the basic outlines of what you need to do. And at the beginning, the thought is you don't need to understand yourself. You're quite easy to live with. The other person <laughs> seems quite easy to live with as well. And you understand each other by intuition, often by not speaking, by just lying down next to one another. You can feel you can sort of feel your way into somebody else's soul. So dangerous.
0: Yes, it is. I was just having a conversation with my partner, wherein I said, "Didn't you know when you first met me how sensitive I am?" And she said, "No, you seem so confident and easygoing."
2: <laughs> That's right, and 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 that it's so hard to, it's it's so well we use that term unromantic to have to find the words to spell out aspects of one's psyche. This is why the sulk has a traditionally the uh, sulk. Has, has has a very important role to play in romantic love because what is a sulk? A sulk is fury that the other person hasn't understood something key about you, mixed with a real commitment to not explaining what that thing is. So you're sort of blaming them for not understanding you, but refusing to explain because that seems a betrayal of love. So you you know you get home, you bolt the bathroom door. And you refuse to say what's wrong because you expect the lover to be able to read through the door and through the door into your soul and just know. And that's, you know, that's a childhood fantasy that the parent can see into you, that God can see into you. And it's very touching, but so dangerous that the truth is we have to learn to become our own advocates. Uh, I think that in many ways, relationships are about teaching. Successful relationships are ones where the couple, each part of the couple allows the other to teach them and takes on board the lessons without fury, without bitterness, uh, without a sense of being harmed or humiliated. But that demands such patience and maturity on both parts because the default position is, hang on a minute, I'm supposed to be perfect. If there's something you're trying to tell me, you couldn't love me. Like if you're trying to point out X, Y, or Z, you don't love me. And who are you to teach me anyway? So there's... Tremendous resistance to the kind of pedagogical aspect of good love.
0: One of the characters in the book, Kirsten's mother, thinks there is no one more likely to destroy us than the person we marry. Do you agree with that?
2: I think so. I mean, in a way, marriage is not a particularly kind thing to do to someone you really care about, because you. <laughs> you're,
0: That's a profound statement. You just snuck that in there.
2: You, you know, it's like getting on uh, board a little raft and sailing out on the choppy seas, and there's one mast and not much room on the raft, and off you go, and. You know, you will meet with monsters and dangers and physical dangers and financial pressures. You will be living in a confined space. If you decide to have children, that is an unbelievable hurdle all of its own. And, you know, you sort of think, well, you know, at one point, I won't give way too much of the plot, but Rabbi meets somebody else, gets a crush on somebody else. And... He thinks that she's lovely and beautiful, et cetera. And he's trying to imagine where this might go, where this relationship might go. And as a younger man, he would have known exactly where it would go. He'd want to marry her and, and be together with her and have children with her. And he suddenly thinks, my goodness, that would be such an imposition on her. And he realizes that in a way to really honor this beautiful woman, accomplished, intelligent woman that he's met, the best thing to do is just to say, hi there on the road of life. <laughs> I really appreciate you. You seem terrific. I'm getting out, not because I don't love you, but because I do love you. And I know what lovers can do to one another when their full desire to possess and their capacities for destruction are engaged.
0: There is a great deal of fear in the characters and in the way they love. In addition to slamming doors, and there's quite a lot of slamming doors, especially as they first disappoint each other. Um, at one point, Ruby states to Kirsten, fuck you, leave me alone, to which you write is sometimes how fear can sound. And that's when I think he goes into his very first sulk.
2: You know, it's, it's a weird thing that um, some of our worst behavior in relationships is driven by some pretty touching things. It's when we behave Absolutely abysmally. That very often, you know, something very vulnerable, childlike, and in a way, you know, something we should feel sympathetic towards, is in play. But of course, we look so revolting that the other person is really, unless they're, you know, a mixture of Jesus Christ and a wonderful psychoanalyst, they're not really in a position. <laughs> right. You know, when you say to your partner, very often, you know, "Leave me alone. You've ruined my life. I hate you." Right? The normal response is to go, "You are behaving horribly." Now. If one was a mixture of Jesus and Freud or whatever, one would go, this is somebody who's in real pain. Like, come to me, you're in pain, and I want to fix that. We can count on one hand how often that goes on um, in couples, but that's the destination. That's what we should, when we can manage it, uh, be able to decode some of our lover's most wounded, enraged, frightened pronouncements, and see beneath the vicious surface some of the vulnerability and, and basic niceness that's still there. It's just not seeming that way.
0: We seem to treat our partners worse than we would treat people we really loathe. And we supposedly love our partners, right?
2: Of course, because they won't run away. And this is the sort of irony of of, of love that um, love gives us the security to um, demonstrate and reveal all kinds of dynamics that are really troublesome that we hide from everybody else. So you know if you eavesdrop on most couples some of the things they say to one another you think these people are so nice in the rest of their lives they're civil patient they forgive etc and suddenly what's going on in the couple they they you know cannot believe it and the reason is they're revealing the more damaged sides of themselves, which we all have, because love has made them secure enough to, to right. allow that. Right. So,
0: so a person has to feel safe around someone else in order to be that difficult, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> before a child, you write how before a child can throw a tantrum, the background atmosphere needs to be profoundly benevolent.
2: Absolutely. I have daily demonstrations of this with my own children, who um, sometimes behave in absolutely foul ways. And I once said to my son, who's eleven, my older son, who's eleven. I said to him, you know, I never behaved like this with, towards my father, as he sort of said something quite vile to me. And he said, well, that's because I know you love me. And I thought, wow, well, he's got a bullseye there. And, and you know, that is also some of the paradox of modern parenting, that we are you know, most modern parents spend an inordinate amount of time trying to reassure their children that they are loved. And in return, they'll get some pretty awful behavior back because, well, you've shown you can take it.
0: What's interesting about how parents love their children becomes apparent when Rabi starts thinking... Actually, I think Kirsten is watching Rabi with their child and observes that the love that he's showing his daughter might actually challenge her in the future because she's never going to find somebody, a partner, to love her quite in the same safe way her father does.
2: That's right. And of course, but she also goes on to observe that you know, in later years, the daughter, Esther, might turn around to her partner and go, why aren't you, you know, warm and nice? Why can't you love like my father? And And actually, the true answer is, to this man who maybe is behaving quite badly, the true answer is, well, you are just like my father, just not the kind of bitter side of my father that he ever showed me.
0: Right. You say that if we're not regularly, deeply embarrassed by who we are, the journey to self-knowledge hasn't begun. What bad habits and types of self-sabotage do you think deprive us from self-knowledge in work and in love? We've all got
2: such an investment in seeming more or less sane and normal, and not, you know, <laughs> in avoiding humiliation. Um, and so, you know, many relationships have got a lot of struggles where we need to appear authoritative. It's like, where are we going to go for Christmas, or, you know, what what kind of couch should we buy? And we want our own voice heard, but at the same time. There's so much about us that requires real vulnerability to admit that you've got some sides to you that require real generosity of interpretation. You know, when people say things like, oh, so-and-so's afraid of intimacy, a fear of intimacy is so normal and natural. Um, Of course we're afraid of intimacy. Intimacy is really frightening. It's not some sort of weird oversight. So we need to be kind of kindly and patient with that fear. Um, It's coming from a very legitimate place we need to spend most of our lives very defended. And then true partnership involves taking down the defenses. But you know, no wonder we can't necessarily do that with total flexibility and speed all the
0: time. At the end of the course of love, you declare, we don't need to be constantly reasonable in order to have good relationships. All we need is to have mastered is the occasional capacity to acknowledge with good grace that we may, in one or two areas, be somewhat insane.
2: I think a lot of how relationships go is not to do with so much what people do with one another and and, and inflict on one another as to the story they're able to explain about what they're doing. So if someone is aloof all weekend and a bit strange, but then they're able to explain why and they they say, well, you know, it was actually like this and this is the reason, etc. You can forgive that very quickly. I think often what's really hurtful is puzzlement. We simply cannot understand where hurtful behavior is coming from. So that's why, yes, in the novel I say the two characters are always going to have flaws, but what they get better at doing, and this is part of their journey, they get better at explaining how they're difficult. So uh, Kirsten understands where some of her slightly unusual behavior around love comes from. So does They They just become better able to go, you know, that thing's happening in me. I'm giving you a little bit of a warning. You're not getting the full brunt of my disturbed state because I'm able to put a kind of meta-narrative. And this is what one could call a kind of therapeutic relationship or a therapized relationship where two people are just better able to give each other a, a manual for how the other works. And that is an immense gift, the greatest gift that you could give to somebody you're trying to live with.
0: That's interesting that you use the word manual reading The Course of Love was revelatory for me. It almost felt like you had um, gone into my head and revealed all of my self-delusions and and my own issues. And it really taught me quite a lot. It is a wonderful way of looking at another relationship and feeling not so alone in in the way that you create your own dynamics. And I know you have uh, a remarkable online enterprise called the School of Life. So the last thing I want to ask you about is that.
2: Look, broadly speaking, I'm interested in emotional education. And that's what my novels are about, their journeys in emotional education. And I think we don't get that enough in our societies. And a lot of the trouble that we feel in relationships and in our friendships and, and lives more generally are down to the fact that some some basic but, but often tricky bits of emotional functioning are not enough on the surface of how we live. And so it can take us long, too long, before we get to certain insights that could really have made a substantial difference to our level of happiness. So together with some colleagues in 2008, I started something called the School of Life. It exists as physical branches in 10 locations and also online as a YouTube channel. We have a blog as well. And what this institution does is to try and put out there a lot of the information that I feel will help people to you know save themselves some time, because that's what it's all about. We, we do waste an awful lot of time in, in confusion.
0: We get in our own way, right? Absolutely. Ala the independent stated that you are one of those rare writers driven by a determination to improve the world thank you for doing that. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters to talk about how to be better at loving and be better in love. To find out more about Alain DuPontant and his books, go to alaindupontant.com. This is the 11th year of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Norman, and